Good morning. My name is Caleb. I'm one of the pastors on staff at Grace. We're in 1 Corinthians 1 uh, for the third straight week. Fortunately, it's a great chapter, so we're uh, not running out of good material yet. But uh, yeah, we've been in this chapter for uh, three straight weeks, um, and it's a really good one. So 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 31, it's printed in your bulletin. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom. But we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and uh, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not, to reduce to nothing things that are, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. O God, grant by your Spirit that your wisdom would be known this morning. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Getting the foolishness of the gospel right is really a difficult task. Getting the foolishness of the gospel right is a really important task. Now you might say um, that the last thing that the church needs is um, to become more foolish. Uh, And uh, that's not a new line of thinking. I, I have a copy at home of Thomas Jefferson's Bible which is um, a version of the Bible that Thomas Jefferson edited by um, trying to make it more reasonable, making it feel a little bit less foolish, a little bit more palatable to the times that he was in. And so it has kind of redacted and cut out uh, pretty much all the miracles, um, a lot of the stories, and then a lot of the teaching um, that's in the New... It's just the New Testament. A lot of the teaching in the New Testament that wasn't, you know didn't exactly set well with with him, I guess, or he didn't think set well with the times that he was in. And so you end up with a very reasonable little book that is, um, you know, no one really has any qualms with. And uh, it's a nice little, um, you know, guide on morals that uh, Thomas Jefferson used as his Bible. Um, And for modernists like Jefferson, um, you know, the story of Jesus, he was able to fit it into sort of these little boxes that that he had to fit it in. Um, 
So, that, so, so, so you have that that option to responding to something like the fool. I want. I I should have looked. I didn't even look if this text was in there. Maybe he got rid of the foolishness of the cross. Um, you also have um, Christian communities that um, really seem to lean into sort of the wrong end of foolishness, and um, you hear stories. You know, communities that because. At one point, Paul was on an island and he was bitten by a snake and he didn't die from it that um, still do ceremonies with snakes where they grab them and um, are, are in theory supposed to not be hurt by the venom of a snake. And those don't really end well. And that seems a little bit foolish um, to me. You can all probably think of examples that come across your newsfeed or that you hear of from friends or maybe that you grew up with where you think, boy, the church has really embraced this foolishness idea. Um, to an extreme, what does Paul mean when he commends the foolishness of God to us? When he commends the foolishness of the cross as the power of God? Um, I want to ask three questions. Um, What does the foolishness of the cross mean for this Corinthian church as it relates to their community? What does the foolishness of the cross mean as, uh, as, as it relates to the Corinthian the, the, the city of Corinth and the world more generally? And then what does the foolishness of the cross mean maybe uh, for us uh, today? So, so those are kind of the three questions. Paul, Paul writes about the foolishness of the cross for the, Christian, uh, for the Christian community in Corinth, partly in response to what we've been talking about the last few weeks, the factions and the divisions and the elitism that's breaking up this Corinthian church that they've written to Paul asking for advice on. Last week, Bob preached on the section where Paul is saying, listen, some of you are saying I was baptized by Peter. Some are saying I was baptized by Apollos. Some of you are saying I was baptized by Paul. Um, and, and Paul, you know, is, is Christ divided? Um, was Paul crucified for you? Paul brings in the cross as part of his response to how the Corinthians need to think about their divisions. Um, I've listened to Bob's sermon. Uh, Bob said, For Paul, what was so poisonous about the state of affairs is that it was rending the unity of the community asunder. Um, The cross is God's subjecting God's self to pain, to suffering, to humiliation, even unto death. It does not matter what your arguments are or even what your beliefs are if they are not embodied in the shape of the cross. The problem wasn't that different opinions existed. The problem was that the way that they were holding these opinions within their community was not in the shape of the cross. Said another way by Paul later on in this letter, if I have faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I can convince you of my argument and prove that I am right, if I can show that I am morally superior or theologically superior or that I am um, better off in whatever way, if I, if I can do all of those things but have not love, in the end I am nothing. If I can move mountains with my faith and do healings but have not love, I am nothing. It's not simply what you believe but how you believe it. Um, the followers of God made flesh in Jesus, must be concerned not only about what they believe, but about how they believe it in their lives. Paul brings the cross into the beginning of this letter and reminds the community of faith that they are the foolish community of the cross. The other point that he makes in bringing the cross um, 
to the Corinthians in, in, in the opening of chapter 1 um, is that it is, is an example of how God uses weakness. Um, there's this, in the second half of this reading, there's this section that starts, not many of you were wise by human standards. And I wonder if, um, I wonder if they sort of laughed or had an awkward pause or a moment where they looked around at each other when Paul is writing this. Um, you, they would have read this letter aloud to the community. Um, it, it feels a little, not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were of noble birth or very well off. The fact that you are all a part of this community is proof that God has chosen what is foolish to shame the wise and the cross is the best example of this that there is. The fact that you are all in this community is proof that God has chosen what is foolish to shame the wise. God chose what is weak to shame the strong. And in this way, Paul takes out the legs of anyone who wanted to boast of their own strength. Any superiority you might feel towards someone else in this community is the exact thing you need to repent of rather than boast in. Those who feel morally superior, financially superior, intellectually superior, those superiorities are precisely the things that need to be laid down at the foot of the cross. The cross is the symbol for the Christian community of the way they need to hold themselves in community. Not that morals or finances or intellect are inherently bad. They're not. But any superiority derived from them needs to be sacrificed at the cross where God reveals that true power takes the shape of a suffering servant. So the cross... um, the cross is, is the symbol that Paul uses to remind the community of who they are, to remind the community of why they are and how they ought to be with one another. Um, what does the foolishness of the cross mean for the world? I, I think also that Paul in this section is, not, uh, is speaking to some of these divisions, but he's also speaking to some of the concerns that the Corinthian community and Christian communities you know, um, in that time probably had about the cross being just absolute worst marketing tool possible for a church to uh, to, to a church to sort of gain any new adherence or, or or maintain its reputation. I mean, the cross, I, you know, you know, we we have conversations about how do we talk about ourselves, how do we market, how do we communicate to people that they're welcome here, and you know, I don't know that the church had. Maybe they had similar sorts of meetings. I don't know, but I imagine in those meetings they thought about you know someone probably like, what if we kind of nicks, kind of what if we downplay this cross thing, this crucified Jesus? Um, I, I have to imagine that, that at some point that came up. The cross was the worst possible marketing tool. It was um, a sign of the empire, um, a Greek invention used by the Roman Empire uh, to inflict you know, as much pain as possible to terrify people. When the disciples realize that Jesus is being crucified, the cross does exactly what it's supposed to do. It sends the disciples running the other direction. It was meant to stop movements, not to be the symbol of them. Uh, It was reserved for the worst criminals, people who committed heinous crimes or who were a threat to the social and political stability of Rome. It was embarrassing. Um... It took a while sometimes for people on crosses to die. You were probably naked. Um, It was humiliating. If your leader was on a cross, you no longer followed that leader. And uh, lastly, it was a a sign of being cursed. There's kind of these references to the Jewish 
um, the stumbling block. It's a stumbling block to Jews for a number of reasons. Part of the reason is to be, to be killed on a tree was to be cursed by God. And so there was no, no better proof that, um, that Jesus and his ministry and what he claimed um, was a joke than, than to have Jesus crucified. It was embarrassing. Paul says, Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. You couldn't get any further from Plato's conception of beauty or from the Greek sense of wisdom than to be rejected and crucified. You couldn't get a clearer sign from God that someone was cursed than for them to be hung on a tree, a stumbling block and foolishness. It would have made sense for the Corinthian church to decide, let's, let's avoid talking about the cross too much. But Paul and the other authors of the New Testament insist, insist that not only can we not whitewash it, but that it has to be central to our faith and to our community. Uh, there's an ancient image. I've probably talked about it before. It's, I find it remarkable. It's the, first, um, it's the first visual representation of Jesus' crucifixion that, that we have. It's the earliest. It's found somewhere probably around 200 A.D. And it's cut into stone, um, kind of inside a cave. And uh, it, it's the image. It's called, uh, you can look it up later if you want. Uh, it's called Aleximenos Graffitio. Um, and it's, it's the image of, of two lines making a cross, and there's a man hung on it, and the man's head is, um, is a donkey's head, replacing the human head. And then there's someone next to it, sort of in, in a worshiping stance. And the graffiti, all in capital letters, um, says, Aleximenos worships his God. And um, it's remarkable to me that the first visual representation we have of the crucifixion of Jesus is this mocking image of someone being bullied for believing in a crucified Lord. And, you know, 150 years or however, you know, however many years it is removed from the actual crucifixion, this is still the reputation, the, this is still the joke being made about Christians that they worship a crucified God. And I, um, I, I feel sometimes some kinship with Aleximenos, this, I don't know. I imagine he's a kid. I feel like he's in high school being bullied and he's, you know, trying to believe in this crucified Jesus and, 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 and figure out what, what does it mean that the, the crucified God is the, is the power of God to me. Um, Paul is encouraging the Corinthians, don't displace the cross from your theology. Put it at the center of your theology, at your center of how you understand who you are as a community, at the center of how you understand your relationship with the Corinthian community. What does the crucified Christ mean for us? What does it mean that, in the words of of Karl Barth, it is in this form of suffering, as the holy rejected and crucified, that he marches with us, in this form, as foolishness, he has addressed us as his own. He encounters us in this form, or not at all. To look past it is not to see him. To miss the word of the cross is not to hear him. Bart goes on to make the point, 
if he is still the same today as yesterday, the temptation is just as strong today and always to say to him, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. There are days I want Jesus to breach his way of being in the world if only for a moment. I want to follow not Jesus, the crucified, always incessantly inviting me to love with the sort of patience and love that the cross requires, but Jesus, the conqueror who marches with me in strength and with the apathy that comes from being powerful. If you are who you say you are, come down from the cross. The world is on fire and is sick and is breaking and come down from the cross and save yourself. I want Jesus to consider his equality with God as something to be exploited. Just take advantage of it. You have it. Use it. Rather than the way that Paul puts it in Philippians, though he was in the form of God, he did not regard his equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being born in human likeness and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christians, for whatever else they may be, are people who follow the teachings of a crucified Jesus. And sometimes that's a letdown. The kids, as Bob mentioned, are spending time with the Beatitudes this morning. The Beatitudes are the foolishness of God put into practice. I wrote this um, in preparation in, in, in the notes for the kids this week. It seems foolish to spend your life working for justice when you might never see it. It seems foolish to be merciful when you know that your mercy will not be shown back to you. It seems foolish to try to make peace in a world that's always at war. It seems foolish to give away money instead of hoard it. In the Beatitudes, Jesus promises that the world does not get the final word. He is announcing to the world that To borrow C.S. Lewis's metaphor from the Chronicles of Narnia, there is an older and deeper magic at work than the work of the world. And Jesus' teaching and life was so far from this world's magic that even John the Baptist had to come up to him and ask, send his disciples and ask him, "Are are you the one that was supposed to come? Maybe they had gotten it wrong and this guy was just a joker. Here is the king of the Jews they wrote above his head. It was a high and unholy joke. The crucified king. It was a joke. He was a joke. The man hung on that tree. They put a sign above his head that said, here is the king of the Jews. And it made people laugh. And they threw dice and they made a game of dividing up his possessions. And the disciples weren't anywhere to be seen because they were afraid of becoming the next punchlines. And that would be the end of it. Accept that eventually, one by one, each and every one of those disciples ended up back at the cross, embracing their own deaths, either because they had lost their minds and they wanted to be the butt of the same old joke they had once run from, or because they had realized that the foolishness of God meant that the ironic sign hanging above the crucified Christ's bleeding head 
was no joke at all. Here is the king. And the soldiers who watched the sky turn black as Jesus died had it right when they fell to their knees and said, Surely this man was the Son of God. There is a temptation to make the foolishness of God palatable. Because who would believe the full tale? There is a temptation for the preacher to, as Beekner puts it, pare the gospel down to a size that he or she thinks the world will swallow. But if we pare down the foolishness of the cross, what will we have left? Something entirely digestible. A vitamin that we can take once a day. Ideas that we can wrap our minds around twice without any trouble. But the darkness of our world refuses to be palatable, and we need the gospel to be the same. One of those men who, uh, who refused to let the foolishness of the cross be lost on him was Oscar Romero, who uh, is a saint and a martyr who died um, standing up to a government in which living out the Beatitudes was treason. He said this, Let us not tire of preaching love, It is the force that will overcome the world. Let us not tire of preaching love. Though we see the waves of violence succeed in drowning the fire of Christian love, love must win out. It is the only thing that can. Even when they call us mad, when they call us subversives, we know we only preach the subversive witness of the Beatitudes, which have turned everything upside down. If we have settled for a palatable gospel, Let us repent. Where we have allowed the cross to become reasonable or have allowed disagreement to become division, let us gather around this table in repentance. The foolishness of the cross is as radical today as it was for the Corinthian church. The Beatitudes are still as subversive and challenging as they were for the disciples. Let us not tire of preaching the self-giving love of God with our time, our resources, our words, our lives. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.